Hello, it is 7th of July 2019 and this is episode 108 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Mostly revolving around writing notes for our spotlights. <laughs> Um, which is going to be on the feminine in Star Wars with a particular focus on Rey and Kylo because, yeah. But it's also nice to know that when I was wandering through London yesterday on Saturday 6th of July, I was in close proximity to Daisy Ridley who was celebrating London Pride at the same time Mm -hmm. that I was negotiating my way through London Pride and having a jolly good time. Because, yeah, it's a really nice, buzzy thing and everyone's just so happy and celebratory. So, yeah, it was a cool place to be. Yeah, I saw the photos and videos of her dancing and she looked amazing. So. Yeah, she really did. Was that the same sequined jacket she wore to the rap party for The Rise of Skywalker? Yes. Such an amazing jacket. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and it's nice. It makes her feel very real that she'll wear the same jacket twice. So in my head, celebrities don't do that. But Daisy Ridley does. So yeah, respect. <laughs> Have you seen Adam Driver do any kind of promotion? He pretty much wears like a revolving collection of three or four shirts. Okay, I should um, revise that <laughs> statement to say female celebrities. <laughs> um, because yeah, Adam Driver, absolutely not. He does not have any wardrobe diversity whatsoever. And I respect mm-hmm. him for the realness of that situation. Um, how about you, Kirsty? How's your week been? Uh, it's been good, but I haven't really done much Star Wars-wise, like you. I feel like <laughs> I almost shouldn't ask the question if we haven't really done much Star Wars stuff, because it makes us seem like bad fans. Let's not police ourselves. Other people <laughs> do that. So. <laughs> yeah, I just haven't been in the right frame of mind to like go back and rewatch any of the movies lately, or I feel like I've caught up on the latest few books. Um, I'm looking forward for more to come out around Galaxy's Edge, mm-hmm. but... Um, in the meantime, there's a little bit of a lull. So Exactly. We're in a drought, basically. I, I think we'll get fed, well and truly fed, in August, um, which will also coincide with your time off. But that's fine. And yeah, there'll be plenty of time to catch up later. So it'll be good. Oh, yeah. Maybe we should talk about that quickly, actually, just to remind people that I'm having a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, there'll be a few weeks where I won't be on the show. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'll be occupied, and um, Rachel's hoping to have a few guests and friends on to kind of cover my time while I'm away. Yep, exactly. So I'll really miss Kirsty, as you can probably imagine, because <laughs> yeah, this is very much like a double act, and it's all about having Rachel and Kirsty. But I'm also really happy that I've got some great people lined up to join me for the weeks when Kirsty won't be on the show. And yeah, we're cooking up some exciting spotlights and we'll make sure that you get fed with regards to all the Star Wars news and stuff. So yeah, we'll keep you posted. Yeah, and then I'll come back and you can fill me in on everything that's been happening in Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) I probably won't be able to keep up as much as I'm used to. Of course, yeah. That could be an episode on its own. Like Rachel tells Kirsty everything that's happened in Star Wars. (laughs) After my fandom break. Yeah. Exactly, coming back up for air. Um, yeah. So, I think now with that little bit out of the way, 
we can move into the news, where we continue the saga of Daisy Ridley saying stuff about Star Wars while she's promoting Ophelia. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the reality does seem to be that it was like 20% talk of Ophelia and 80% talk of Star Wars. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment, Kirsty? Um, I don't know. She did talk a fair amount about it. Yeah, you're right. It's a huge role and a lot of things were kind of tying in Shakespeare and Star Wars together actually mm-hmm. uh, there was some fun I think it was BuzzFeed or someone did a fun segment with her where they like were reading out um, like Yoda quotes versus Shakespeare quotes and she had to guess which was which <laughs> did she get some them all them right? some of them quite tricky she didn't get them all right she got most of them right I think Okay. Um, I need to watch that that sounds like quality entertainment yeah it was cute <laughs> but yeah the, like you say the reality is that for all of our Star Wars stars they will, they will inevitably try and sneak in some Star Wars questions because they know that's primarily where people know them from. Yeah, exactly. It's the hard, cold truth. And luckily, Daisy is happy to talk. Um, specifically, she was talking a lot about Star Wars on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast. And would like to thank Slimo for her great coverage of this because she did a fantastic job of sharing clips and transcripts and stuff and made everyone's lives easier basically as is her habit to do so thank you very much um yeah and we just have a few like excerpts from that podcast to discuss um i was thinking Kirsty, that if we read them one by one then we can have a little chat about each one and then move on okay i would also recommend that anyone go and listen to this whole interview i think it was like 45 minutes yes it's with uh, josh horowitz and she seems to be good friends with him at this point so he gets lots of good answers out of her (laughs) um but a lot of it wasn't star wars related but it was still really interesting so i think you can find it on spotify yeah no i 100 percent support that recommendation it's just a fantastic podcast full stop and josh has a fantastic way with people like i listened to all three of the episodes he's done interviewing donald gleason for example they were great they're amazing they're so good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like on top of that, because this is the level to which I enjoyed the show, I also listened to the episode where he interviews Brendan Gleeson. And of course, his first line of questioning is about Donal. <laughs> and it, it's the most cute and embarrassing thing at the same time. So he's literally talking about Donal Gleeson as a baby. Oh, <laughs> It's like, this is such a 360 experience now of Donal Gleeson. <laughs> So it's a great show and people should subscribe to it. So yeah, recommended. Um, yeah, so the first quote that we have is from Daisy on working with Adam Driver. So would you like to read out that quote, Kirsty? Uh Sure. So I think she was asked like if they have fun together, considering that their scenes are so intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, oh yeah, we actually joke the whole time. We just walk around swinging our sabres. Yeah, no, it's not a laugh riot. Again, sorry, I can't read this out as a seamless thing because he he asked if there was like unique material that he that Daisy and Adam get to work on in the new movie, mm-hmm. and she says, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it. I just think they've just done a great job with all the relationships, like with the fun friendships and with the sort of strange thing with Ray and Kylo Ren. So, so it could, obviously she's speaking off the cuff so it's a lot of ums and yeah I think um, but the main thing to note for me is that she's like once again distinguishing between the fun friendships and the strange thing 
that they can't quite put their finger on they can't quite define it with Ray and Kylo because obviously that's a big question of the trilogy yeah exactly I think it's pretty clear that that's going to be where a lot of the meat of the film is so it's clearly very significant and she's trying to find a way to describe it without giving anything away whatsoever which is why she settles on strange thing because yeah it's kind of meaningless but at the same time it does tell you that it's different from what Ray has with those friends basically and she could have just said oh yeah the enemy relationship the fact that we hate each other <laughs> like it could have been simple and straightforward but obviously it's not exactly it's messy and complicated which is what we like to hear so yeah i think it was an interview with josh horowitz at celebration where they were joking about it being that it's complicated status on facebook for their relationship so oh yeah you're right i forgot that he interviewed the cast there that's so cool yeah so kind of goes hand in hand with that yeah hard to define exactly complicated um yeah then the next quote is about where ray ends up in the rise of skywalker and the thing is too, we finished episode eight and you know where Ray is entirely. So it's, yeah, it was interesting going into that and sort of figuring out where that was going. And there was a way that JJ was describing it as we were doing it. And I was like, God, that's so true. That really is like what this film is for Ray. I think people are going to like it. I really do. So yeah, it's difficult to know what to say in response to this. Can you remember the intonation? Because she said, I think people are going to like it <laughs> in a very funny way. I did not remember the intonation, so I'm glad you interceded with that. Like it. Like it. <laughs> um, that was cute. Yeah, no, it is quite adorable. Um, and yeah, I would love to know how JJ described it to Daisy, basically. That is my main takeaway from this. Yeah, I mean, I think this might factor into what we go on to discuss later in our spotlight or possibly um, the next chapter where we kind of speculate more on the rise of Skywalker. But I do think Rey is in a very specific place at the end of The Last Jedi Mm. and then starting the next film kind of in a similar mindset. And she's kind of alluded to that before with regards to how Rey thinks of Kylo. There were some things in Vanity Fair. I think it was in the panel at Celebration, actually, when she was talking about how at the beginning of the movie, she doesn't think that Kylo is redeemable at that point, you know? Yeah. She's she's kind of given him his choice and he's made it. And for the characters, at least, that's kind of where things are at that point and she doesn't have much hope for him. Yeah. I think that has knock-on effects for how Rey sees herself in the galaxy at that point because, obviously, throughout The, the Last Jedi, and again, we'll talk more about this later, She's kind of looking to Luke to be the saviour of the galaxy. Then she's looking to Ben, saying he's our only hope. And then it comes down to it where she kind of realises, oh, I have to rescue people. It's me. Yeah, exactly. And I'm very curious to see how she takes that on. Right, and then we have another quote. And this one is about the fight between Rain, Kylo and the rain. Could you read this one out, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Also, we have a great fight a great fight and I was really happy that the Vanity Fair pictures did show a bit of it. It's a great fight like I've become such a better fighter and they've made the lightsabers lighter so it actually looks like we're swinging light and not like heavy heavy. He asks her if she's seen a bit of the fight on video and she says I have seen I have. This fight we did it was in November. We had water being thrown at us and I got a great deal of respect because I did not 
I was not going to complain about the cold. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> so it was like a real thing of stamina and it just felt, it feels really epic and it felt epic even at the times where I thought, well, imagine we'd had the waves like this and then they get up and make the waves, I'm sure, bigger. So one can only imagine what it's going to look like. I think we all knew from the Vanity Fair picture that that fight is going to be quite spectacular and special. Um, but yeah, I like how she's describing it and it's fun to always hear about those onset experiences. Um, and yeah, in terms of like story implications, the most interesting thing that this tells me is they're being so open about this fight in particular that I really don't think it can be any sort of big spoiler. I feel like it will probably surprise us with how early it happens in the film. Yeah, I think it'll be a turning point in that it will kind of herald a changing moment for the characters, mm -hmm. but it won't be climactic. Yes. Um, because, yeah, <laughs> like, can you imagine them talking about the throne room scene openly? <laughs> yes. Like six months before, like casually while she's promoting a different movie. Oh, yeah, like we um, kill Snoke. Um, we kill his <laughs> guards fighting back to back. It's pretty sexy, to be honest. Yeah. And they're not going into anything emotional for the characters, like what this could mean for them. It's just that we have a fight, so that's pretty safe. Yeah. Cool. And then the last thing that we want to talk about is a quote she gave about Colin Trevorrow's departure from episode nine. And she says, he, Colin Trevorrow, was Josh Gad's guest at the Murder on the Orient Express premiere. And we went for dinner afterwards. And Colin sat next to me and I was like, what's this going to be like? Because all I had heard, I didn't know what had happened. I just knew that he wasn't doing it anymore. And he did sort of tell me and sort of not. Actually, no, we had gone for dinner and stuff. We went for dinner with Michelle, who is a producer. So I sort of knew. I think everything happens for a reason, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so what do you make of Daisy's very honest take on this awkward situation, Kirsty? Um, she just seems like she's trying to be diplomatic for me, like ev saying I think everything happens for a reason is a very polite non-answer. Um, whatever she thinks about it personally, and I don't know how much she knew about the story at that point, mm. but um, yeah, just that she's like, yep, that happened. Yeah, I, I think she knew what the Collins story was because I remember there being a story about them both being on the set of Saturday Night Live or something like that. Okay, so the quote about Colin telling Daisy about what happened in his version of episode nine is from Bobby Moynihan and he said this, I introduced him to Daisy Ridley at the SNL after party. It was the first time they had met and saw a moment where she went, what happens to me? And he went, do you want to do this now? And she said, yeah. And they went off into a corner of the bar and he whispered into her ear and she started crying. So, hmm. yeah, that's apparently how it went down. Again, with the whole crying thing, like I think it was a couple of weeks ago when we got the interview with Carrie Russell saying that she cried when she read the script. And, and Daisy's also said that JJ's version is very emotional. It doesn't tell you whether it's good crying or bad crying. <laughs> so Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's not like oh god it's so bad <laughs> i think that's maybe what people want to think about the trevorrow one but we're we just don't know yeah it might be that it was such a sublime and beautiful story concept that she was just moved to a state of intense emotion mm -hmm. <laughs> or it's just the end and then like that's that's 
her thinking, well, now I know. It has this air of finality to it. So. Yeah, no, I was just joshing with you. Well, I, I think that's a possibility. <laughs> she could have been very happy with the Trevorrow one, but she also seems happy with what JJ's done. Yeah. So. Again, this is the, all this sort of drama is why we need a good tell-all book, basically. <laughs> we need the scales to be lifted from our eyes. Cool. And then the next thing that we want to talk about, and we're just going to talk about it very quickly, there's not that much to say, to be honest, is that there is going to be a Lucasfilm publishing panel at Comic-Con, and this is going to be on Friday, July 15th. And basically there's going to be a whole bunch of Lucasfilm authors attending, so people like Delilah Dawson, Katie Cook, E.K. Johnston, Brian Rood, and of course, Timmy Zahn. Um, so Timmy, <laughs> I just find saying Timmy so funny. So I find T- okay. Timothy kind of a silly name. But yeah, Timothy Zahn is his actual name. Like I'm sure he doesn't actually go by Timmy. <laughs> I think he goes by Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where I find the name Timmy so funny, but I do. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, are there any like specific announcements or anything that you'd expect from this, Kirsty? Or do you expect um, it just to be like what they were doing at Celebration, which was basically just summarising all the stuff we already know about? I'm hoping they go into more detail about things like the um, Skywalker saga book that Delilah Dawson's working on. Yeah, that'd be good. As we get closer to the rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Um, I think Brian Rood is doing the illustrations for that, so that could fit together nicely. Yeah, no, he is. I actually spoke to him at Celebration, and he said they had done dozens and dozens of original paintings just for this book. So hopefully they'll show off some of that artwork. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of these authors, if not all of them, have something uh, coming out soon rather than having just come out, because like they haven't announced anything new for E.K. Johnston, but I'm assuming since Queen Shadow's been out for a good few months that she would have something new to announce even if it's like working on what's that mysterious Project Luminous oh Project Luminous yeah no one knows what it is it's a bit annoying to be honest they keep on hyping it it up it is a bit annoying I keep seeing people talk about it on social media I'm like if you're not going to tell us just don't mention it okay yeah (laughs) wait until you're ready to reveal it because all it does is get people amped up for something that they might then be let down by yeah exactly it might just be like a huge anti-climax like can you imagine if it is literally just another from a certain point of view it's like doing wrong i I think it could be i I enjoyed that book just to be clear i'm not dissing that book but to have this level of insane hype and build up to a project that would only amount to that people would not be impressed yeah (laughs) gotta rein it in a little bit i'm sure the people working on it are very excited yes so it's natural for them to talk about it but if they're doing it publicly on social media and yet can't actually say to us what it is yeah <laughs> like i think someone might need to tell them about this thing called whatsapp and like whatsapp groups. yeah get it get a discord just <laughs> <laughs> keep it amongst yourself please um yeah and for me i think the main thing i'd like to see is more information on this the journey to the rise of skywalker like line of books oh yeah that's the force collector one right that's part of that yeah exactly and um the rebecca roanhorse um book resistance reborn so they're both part Mm. of that line so yeah hopefully we'll learn more about those um because yeah i need my pre-rise of skywalker story content yeah (laughs) should be exciting Yeah, so now that we have the news out of the way, we can move on to our spotlight section, which this time is going to be on the feminine in Star Wars. 
Um, I will warn people in advance that this is going to be quite limited to Rain Kylo this time. I think at some point in the future we'd like to broaden out and talk about more of the female characters and more about the female influence in some of the other male characters. But as it so often happens when you're preparing notes and when you're doing research, things just lead you in a certain direction and that's what happened this time. Uh, this discussion obviously is going to build on last week's spotlight where we talked about the masculine in Star Wars. So yeah, they make good complimentary listens, or at least that's our goal, to make good complimentary <laughs> listens. And yeah, before we get into the meat of this in any way, we'd just like to say thank you for the great feedback on the last episode. We were really touched by some of the lovely things people had to say. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's always very nice to read that people are enjoying the show. Um, and of course, if you listen to this and you feel like you have more to add, or that there's some things that we should have really covered... That we haven't aside from the things like rachel said that we're just probably not going to have time to get to um while also doing them justice because you know there's always the opportunity to come back to these topics in future and kind of expand them to other more minor characters um please get in touch on twitter or tumblr or at scavengers at gmail.com mm-hmm. yep 100 percent. cool so Mike, again, as a little bit of a prologue, I'd just like to name drop the books that we'll be referring to because we're going to be quoting from these books quite heavily. So in case people are interested, I wanted to make sure that we acknowledge them up front so people knew to seek them out. So the first is She, Understanding Feminine Psychology by Robert Johnson, which is very much like a companion piece to Understanding Masculine Psychology, which we both read for last week's episode for obvious reasons. Then the next book is The Feminine in Fairy Tales by Marie-Louise von Franz. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to read this because I don't have a copy of it, but Kirsty has read it and has picked out some very interesting quotes, which we'll be talking about. Yeah, I would also recommend um, The Anima and Animus in Fairy Tales by the same author. Um, we're not going to quote from that directly today, but those two books go really well hand in hand if you're, if you're looking at the... Um, the feminine in fairy tales so cool and marie louise von franz in general just any anything you want to know about Jungian psychology applied to fairy tales she's the person to go to because that was her specialty and she worked alongside young for most of her career yeah i was reading her wikipedia page earlier actually and she seems like a real badass lady so yeah serious respect yeah this book that we're we're working from it's kind of edited from a series of her lectures that she gave in the 50s um, at the Young Institute in Zurich. Um, you kind of wish that you could just watch the lecture instead, <laughs> but this is the best that we have. Yeah. So. It's a shame they didn't have YouTube in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's still an entertaining read yeah. and informative. So. And then the final book is more specific, um, and it's Charlotte Bronte and the Mysteries of Love, Myth and Allegory in Jane Eyre by Elizabeth Imlay, which is the reverse, because I have this book, but Kirsty does not. I don't, but you, you helpfully sent me photos of <laughs> the chapters that you wanted me to read. So, And I think a, a good amount of it is on the Google Books kind of preview. Okay. I think that's true for Marie-Louise von Franz too. But, good. Um, but yeah, I, I consider this kind of a, a good second chapter of The Mad Woman in the Attic, which I think, was that like an episode back in... 2018? Yes, I think it was. Which is crazy, so it feels quite recent, but it was definitely last year. 
Yeah, just love to talk about Jane Eyre in the sequel trilogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And reading this book, it really like impressed me because it really brought it home. To be honest, I don't get me wrong. I'd always understood and seen the parallels and stuff, but this book it gets deep, man. It gets so deep. And yeah, it was also incredibly helpful to read in relation to the Johnson book specifically, because the book about Jane Eyre it explores that story a lot in relation to the Cupid and Psyche myth. And the Cupid and Psyche myth is basically the whole point of understanding feminine psychology. That's what Johnson uses as a template for understanding feminine psychology. So, yeah, like it was a really useful experience to read both those books and sort of try to synthesize them and come up with something hopefully a bit original from that reading. So, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, you can almost um, kind of tease out a timeline of the evolution of that myth. Obviously, we're, we're going to be missing a big chapter in between of like the evolution of the Beauty and the Beast, because that's the same kind of thing. Yeah. But we can always get to that another time. But yeah, Jane Eyre clearly comes out of that kind of family of fairy tales and myths. And we believe that the sequel trilogy does too. So Yeah, so basically much like we said before the episode on masculinity um we have to add the disclaimer that like we're not talking about masculine and feminine as exclusive concepts they're definitely not restrained exclusively to men and women and it's more about like masculine coded attributes and feminine coded attributes so we are going to be talking a lot in terms that might seem absolute but we're not trying to get get across that prescriptive meaning of what masculine and feminine are yeah for obvious reasons because it's a spectrum and like we don't want to make assumptions about our listenership and how people identify and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah and i was wondering would you care to read out that robert johnson quote kirsty which i think captures what i was just feebly trying to say (laughs) better than Mm -hmm. i did yeah so this is from the introduction to she understanding feminine psychology he says Many psychologists have interpreted the Eros and Psyche myth as a statement of the feminine personality. Perhaps it would be wise at the very beginning of this study to say that we are speaking of femininity wherever it is found, in men as well as in women. To confine this story to women's personalities alone would be to limit it severely. At this point, whenever we speak of the feminine aspects of the Eros and Psyche myth, we are speaking not only about women, but also about the man's anima, his feminine side. I must say that the way he actually writes the book, he does keep referring to women. Yes. Rather than men's feminine side. So it's kind of a disclaimer that he has at the top. And it's certainly like, I would encourage people to read it that way. Because as we'll go into later, that's, again, a key part of what we see in the sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has all sorts of interesting questions to raise about if we're talking about Ray as well as Psyche. Um, whether she's her own fully fleshed character and the indisputable lead of her own story uh, or, or if she's simply a projection of the male character's anima so yeah exactly um, and yeah like I had the same criticism of the Johnson book in that while he might say this in the introduction it does seem slightly disingenuous because he repeatedly talks only really about women and how like the functions and the like characteristics he discusses he only really applies them to experiences and case studies of women as well so yeah like it's not saying that the book 
like has no value or anything I think has plenty of value it's just useful to read it critically and those sorts of limitations are why we also bring in the perspectives of other female authors because yeah they help to flesh things out further with complementary perspectives mm-hmm. with the myth of like eros and psyche slash cupid and psyche are you okay with me saying cupid rather than eros or would it be best to say eros all the way through i feel like that's what the writers use more often <laughs> I, Cupid's fine by me. Okay, <laughs> it's the same character. So. It is the same character. Yeah, it's just terminology. Basically, there's a funny thing that goes on in the books where it's because Cupid, in the popular imagination, has come to mean a fat, chubby baby with <laughs> a bow and arrow who's on like Valentine's cards. Which, yes, that is what people understand the character to be, but it doesn't change the fact that that's also the name of the character from mythology. So yeah, I'm gonna call it Cupid, but he's also known as Eros. And that's what you'll probably hear more in the quotes. So, yeah, basically what we're going to do is we're going to run through the myth of Cupid and Psyche stage by stage and then try and map out corresponding stages of the story of the sequel trilogy so far, like against those stages of the myth. And this is basically to serve as foundation because this specific myth is foundational to how the various books we've been consulting have understood feminine psychology so yeah we felt it was beneficial to really lay things out because we appreciate that not everyone might be familiar with the story and there's also various layers to understand in how the sequel trilogy applies to it and what the relevance is so yeah we wanted to get that out of the way first um but yeah, before I started that specific one-to-one analysis, I wanted to do one final disclaimer, which is that it's important to remember what Star Wars actually is, because while it's often considered to be a myth and a fairy tale, and it draws very heavily from those influences in terms of its structure and tropes and characteristics and all those sorts of things, it's not really a true myth or fairy tale in that it endeavours for something resembling like actual characterization and psychological complexity. So the characters, they're not just flat archetypes. They're people who are complex. There's many layers to them, basically, which you don't find in the characters in myths and fairy tales. So while we will be comparing the myth to the sequel trilogy, it's important to remember that it's not exactly a one-to-one thing. Yeah, I would think of it as like a modern fairy tale. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, they're very popular in, in our day and age. Almost, almost everything people tend to consume, especially in terms of like pop culture, has an element of fairy tale in it. Yeah. People just love fairy tales. So It is certainly a kind of fairy tale. It's just not a fairy tale in the abstract archetypal sense that something like Cupid and Psyche is where like often the meanings seem quite esoteric and people don't always act like people would if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so yeah there's more psychological realism going on a little bit more there's still people chopping off each other's hands and then oh yeah (laughs) forgiving and loving each other no 100% (laughs) it's still heightened it's not like Coronation Street or something (laughs) The first stage of the story of Cupid and Psyche is that Psyche is a princess who lives with her parents, a king and queen, and two sisters in an unnamed city, 
and Psyche is incredibly beautiful, and the locals come to worship her instead of the goddess Venus. Who's also Aphrodite. Yes, who's also Aphrodite. So yeah, you'll hear both names. <laughs> I just feel like we need to cover our bases like we did with Eros and Cupid. Yeah, no, exactly. We've got to like show equal consideration in how we talk about these things. How would you map the beginning of the Cupid and Psyche story against the sequel trilogy, Kirsty? Well, a fundamental element of Cupid and Psyche um, and Psyche and Aphrodite is that Psyche is human. Mm-hmm. So she is considered normal, relatable, human, a typical girl, obviously very beautiful and worshipped by men around her. Um, but there's meant to be that contrast. So it's it's right at the beginning of the story, isn't it? It's when we meet Ray on Jakku and she's living this very mundane uh day-to-day subsistence life struggling to just take care of herself and uh, she's very lonely exactly and she's not aware of her powers at that point yeah it's like obviously you don't have a situation where ray is being worshipped because of her special abilities <laughs> on jakku that is not a thing but she- although i do remember it being in the in the force awakens script that it's noted that she's beautiful oh really which of course daisy is but um, it's interesting that they actually point that out. Yeah. No, so that's part of the story. And yeah, so while Ray is beautiful, that's not made a point of in the way that it is in the myth. And I'd argue that what marks her out as special and different and a target of attention is her possession of the Force, even though it's latent right at the start of the story and no one, least of all Ray, realises that she has it. So basically, if you replace... The fact that Psyche is beautiful with the fact that Rey has strong power in the Force. I think that's the closest you can get to figuring out how that specialness is represented in the story. So then we get really fun. Venus is jealous and dispatches her son, Cupid, to strike Psyche with a love arrow so she will fall in love with a hideous monster. Do you want to take a stab at this one, Kirsty? <laughs> yeah, well this is what is so interesting about the sequel trilogy because... Obviously, it's not, it's not going to be a one-to-one comparison the whole way through. Mm-hmm. But um, Aphrodite kind of weirdly straddles Leia in her good qualities and Snoke in her jealous evil qualities, mm. I think. Yeah. So, um, obviously, we have Snoke. Fearful of the awakening in the Force that Rey represents, he dispatches Kylo to find the droid, which leads him to Rey on Takodana. Yeah, I, I think we all know what happens next. Oh, another thing to note, and I, I feel like we brought this up a lot before because I find it fascinating, that um, in the Art of the Force Awakens book, and maybe in some of the DVD special features, J.J. Um, Abrams says that quite early on they were considering Snoke to be a female character, which I don't know how conscious that was in terms of adapting this myth, mm. um, or just like an awareness of general fairy tale archetypes and dynamics but that would have had very interesting implications i think for ray and snoke's relationship that didn't quite come to fruition at least for me um when they finally meet in the last jedi that was kind of more about kylo and snoke's relationship yeah like i'll be eternally sad that they made snoke like a wrinkled old dude (laughs) (laughs) as wonderful as andy circus is when you just think about the potential it would have been really cool yeah it would have created just such a different vibe i think it would have been much harder for people to accuse snoke of being palpatine light if he had been like this beautiful goddess-like woman 
But yeah, the next part of the myth. Cupid inadvertently scratches himself with his own arrow and instantly falls in love with Psyche. He spirits her away to his kingdom. I'm not sure I can award any points for guessing what this corresponds to in the sequel trilogy, <laughs> so I think it's pretty obvious. It's Kylo abducting Rey on Takodana, taking her back to Starkiller Base, taking his mask off, all that. Exactly. And it's also that whole thing of being surprised by that overwhelming rush of love that like he experiences. And again, that might be a bit strong to say rush of love in the context of the sequel trilogy, but rush of attraction, perhaps. It's a fascination. And uh, of course, when we're talking about ancient myth, that's what it means as well. It's not that Cupid catches himself on his arrow and literally falls in love as we as humans in the real world know it. It's It forges a connection between these two characters and has ongoing ramifications for the rest of their story. And there's also, of course, the whole thing about whisking the maiden off to a kingdom, which, to be fair, in Cupid and Psyche, the story, it sounds like a much better kingdom than a cell in Stockholm base. Instead of paradise, we get the horrible icy dead underworld of Starkiller, but... <laughs> You get the gist. It has kind of a Hades and Persephone vibe to it as well, doesn't it? So yeah, they're kind of bringing in all of these different elements. So then, like after, like Psyche is taken away to Cupid's kingdom, they live together happily, but Cupid is secretive and refuses to allow Psyche to truly see him. So basically, in the myth, he's invisible, and Psyche is waited upon by this army of equally invisible servants, and all great and they're having sex and it's pretty nice (laughs) but yeah he does not want her to see his face under any circumstances so yeah this is where things get interesting and more complicated in my opinion because as far as i'm concerned you see this in both the force awakens and the last jedi she basically sees some overlapping where the same like cycles are kind of repeated in different formulations in both films. Mm-hmm. So I'd argue that in The Force Awakens, you get this paradise sequence very, very briefly and in a very limited fashion <laughs> when Rey and Kylo are basically in that interrogation room and it's just them because you have similar elements in that Kylo is invisible to her and that he's hidden, he's behind the mask, until he isn't, which is a separate thing to talk about. And you also have that thing of this mysterious affinity between them. So, yeah, Starkiller Base isn't that special as a place to hang out, and it's definitely not paradise, but you sense that there's something like being achieved and... A sort of communion going on between the characters that could sort of represent that paradise in a more metaphysical sense oh definitely um i know people have all sorts of readings on the interrogation and we do too there's lots of stuff going on in that scene it's not all related to this element but for what we want to talk about it is key that it's just these two characters interacting staring into each other's eyes not necessarily speaking the whole time, but still communicating in some way that we can't quite perceive and understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back to the idea of him not being comfortable with Ray seeing him, yes, he unmasks physically, but he's obviously shocked when she comes to know him emotionally. He was not prepared for that. 
And yeah, in The Last Jedi, I'd argue that you see this kingdom sequence much more fully explored through that means of the Force Bond, where that basically takes the whole concept of what happened in the interrogation room, which we know Ryan saw as this really electric, like, key point in that film. And then he expanded on that and it really flourished through those sequences where it is, again, just those two people in communion and like communicating secretly with one another like no one else knows beyond them so it's their own secret world basically where they gradually become more and more comfortable with and attuned to each other and like in the last jedi is much more raw and open and there's less concealment but again it's still not fully open and kylo certainly is not being completely transparent with her Mm -hmm. so Ryan was asked, was there anything in JJ's script that you were really excited to pull from? Something like the Knights of Ren? Yeah, but it wasn't really stuff like the Knights of Ren. It was the interrogation scene between Ren and Rey, and the glimpse of some kind of... of that dynamic between those characters. Or the character of Kylo Ren and how interesting it was of him not being Vader but wanting to be, and seeing that vulnerability. Mm. Yeah, this is why Ryan is our icon. (laughs) (laughs) he is possessed of that piercing inside (laughs) (laughs) so that kind of connects those two things together that there were certain scenes in the force awakens and we're strictly talking about relating to these characters in that answer he went on to talk about finn for example yeah but um there are obviously things that he teased out of that first movie that then inspired him to expand on them in the last jedi and it's the force force connection obviously that was the evolution of that dynamic Mm mm-hmm Exactly. And I find the exploration of that connection in The Last Jedi like a much more like rich and deep thing to explore in relation to this myth. Because yeah, you can see it as a much more psychological application of what goes on in the story. As I mentioned at the at the outset, the characters in the myth they don't really have psychological complexity basically so it's all very bold and clear movements and when things go wrong they go wrong in like a physical way and it's about being revealed physically rather than being revealed internally whereas everything in the last jedi is all about that internal aspect because the mask has already come off it came off in the force awakens and it's not going back on so anything that's hidden it's like emotion it's feeling it's thoughts and yeah, Ryan digs deep with it and it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we get to a very, very meaty part of the story, which is missing her family, Psyche begs to be allowed to see them. Psyche's sisters are permitted to visit her and they become jealous upon seeing the splendid life she leads. They convince Psyche to hold a lamp up to her unseen husband to, to discover what he truly is, encouraging her belief that he is actually a hideous monster. When Psyche lights the lamp, she realises that her invisible husband is in fact a beautiful young man. Astonished, she accidentally causes hot oil from her lamp to leak onto his skin, marking him. He awakens and flees, leaving Psyche behind. And yeah, there's a lot to unpack. (laughs) So let's start off with that desire to betray the husband and discover his true face. So... How would you say that occurs in The Force Awakens, Kirsty? 
Well, obviously it's not a one-to-one because there's no one else in the room to tell Ray to do it. Of course. But um, it's Ray kind of goading him, calling him a creature in a mask. Mm -hmm. Um, And Kylo choosing to take it off. Mm. So that's the point where he reveals his true face and she looks surprised. And I think in the commentary, this is when uh, JJ comments on that and says that she's not expecting that and he looks like a sort of prince Mm -hmm. and so why would he be wearing a mask yeah so again it's very much as Kirsty said about those internal doubts and it's not about really revealing the external face although that is significant because Ray does get him to take the mask off um and yeah that's why it's important that it's more fully and deeply explored in The Last Jedi because then we really probe deeper into that internal aspect. Basically, we're going to go on to talk about this more, but in the books we're reading, like that moment with the lamp, that desire for illumination is very much like interpreted as this like moment of consciousness and coming into awareness of how things actually are. And it's interesting that Ray basically seems to possess that consciousness within herself. It's internal to her, not external. So you have that in both a positive and negative way because Ray possesses the power to illuminate what is hidden and Kylo, he's not hiding any surface aspect of himself, really, not without, like, there's no good reason to hide his face because there's nothing wrong with it. Like, he's hiding what's inside, basically, and the mask is just a symbol of that. Mm Mm-hmm. I would say that's like a symbol in the original myth too, but they just explore it here with more agency for the characters so that it's more meaningful in my opinion, or at least resonates with a modern audience more clearly. Yeah. Do you mean the lamp as consciousness? Yeah, but also Cupid hiding himself. Yeah. It brought out more for a modern audience because it's that whole thing of it being esoteric and like you need to interpret it really to understand what's going on on a psychological level because it's not presented to you like as a fact in the story. Mhm. Um yeah. And in the last Jedi, I was thinking about this and I I did have the thought that Luke basically wants to be the jealous sister in this equation. <laughs> like in the sense that he is encouraging Rey to question Kylo. And he's trying to, like, cast doubt and suspicion within her. But what's interesting is it doesn't work at all. Because, if anything, it causes her to double down and increase her faith and trust in him. And, yeah, again, it goes back to that whole thing about the revelation. It needs to come from within Rey herself when she tests him by getting him to make that final choice about call off the attack on the fleet and he won't do it. So it's not an actual moment of illumination. It's a moment of illuminating his true character and his motivations, which are decidedly not good at that point. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, you also get this a lot with father figures in fairy tales too. Mm -hmm. I think we have a quote from Marie-Louise von Franz later about this idea of men reacting quite negatively when a woman around them has that animus possession, as Ray does with Kylo and Luke seeing that yeah, and becoming not jealous but concerned and overprotective um, and kind of dismissive especially in that deleted line of 
what is it? You opened yourself to the dark side for a pair of pretty eyes. <laughs> yes, which is amazing. Leave this island now, banishing Psyche from paradise, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely parallels there. Yeah. And I'm interested to see in The Rise of Skywalker what that might have implications for, or at least feed into Ray's relationships with her friends concerning her connection with Kylo, if that ever comes out. Exactly. I think there's a lot of meat to go into at that point. Um, and yeah, we also have a really interesting quote from Johnson that basically, in a few short sentences, covers this whole stage of the story, right from when Cupid slash Eros um, takes Psyche away to his kingdom up to like the consequences of losing that kingdom, which is obviously what happens for Kylo. So, Robert Johnson, that is Eros in a secretive stage. He wants his paradise, but no responsibility. The feminine demand for evolution and growth, and most growth comes from the feminine element in the myths, is a terrifying experience to a man. He wants just to remain in paradise. <laughs> um, which I do think you see, because, yeah, Kylo's whole deal, especially in The Last Jedi, is that he wants to have that paradise where it's just him and Ray, us against the world. Woohoo! You know, and he thinks that would be great. <laughs> I would say we also get that at the end of The Force Awakens too. Oh yeah. No, it's that whole, um, you need a teacher, I can show you the ways of the Force moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the follow-up, Ray, I want you to join me, we can rule together and bring a new order to the galaxy. <laughs> He's like, well, it didn't work the first time, but <laughs> let's try it again. <laughs> If first you don't succeed, try, try again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bless. Yeah. So, yeah, this stuff's very interesting because it is like, let's work together, but it's also very much on my terms. Yes. And I think that's what Johnson is talking about. You know, Eros wanting his paradise, but no responsibility. Uh, Kylo doesn't want to self-reflect. Yeah. He wants Rey to stay with him because he recognizes that they have a connection and that she cares about him. But yeah, he doesn't want to actually transform at that stage. Yeah. He doesn't want to let the feminine truly in. Yeah. And you also have Eros has worked as hard as he can to keep Psyche unconscious. He promised her paradise if she would not look at him or question him. In this way, he sought to dominate her, which, yeah, again, basically what Kylo tries to do. Yeah, again, that comes back to the idea of illumination, not just being about seeing him physically or even seeing Kylo's own soul like emotionally as she does mm -hmm. in both movies but um seeing the situation clearly which of course ray does in the throne room <laughs> she says don't do this please don't go this way um it's presented as a difficult decision for her because she cares about kylo at that point but at the same time it's not because she could never betray her friends that way yes so yeah he doesn't do a very good job there <laughs> He's not being honest with himself and he's not being honest with her. Yeah. Emotionally. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I know there's all sorts of discourse around whether Kylo's manipulating or lying to her, especially when it comes to in terms of Ray's parentage. I don't think any of that. I just think he's not being honest because he's not ready to be honest with himself in terms of what he needs to do to, to transform at that point. Yeah, exactly. He's not yet at that stage of development. And yeah, a final quote from Johnson that relates to this. A woman often lives some part of her life under the domination of a man in outer life, and if she is alert enough to avoid this, she may then fall under the domination of her inner man, the animus, 
The chronicle of a woman's life can be described in her struggle and evolution in relation to the masculine principle of life, whether she finds it outwardly in a human male or within herself as animus. There is an exact parallel in the life of a man as he struggles to gain some intelligent relationship with the feminine principle of life, whether he finds it through a woman or in the heroic struggle around his inner woman, his anima, outer or inner, this is much of the drama of life. Yeah, I'm like, we're going to build on that further when we start talking about Kino and Ray individually. But I, I think it just captures that push and pull of the dynamic and like, just, yeah, the constant shift in sands between them, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then the final part of the story to mention in relation to this is that the hot oil burns Cupid's skin, marking him. And, again, no points to this, Kirsty, but what what is that in The Force Awakens? Hmm, I think it might be Rey, Scar, and Kylo with the lightsaber. What? <laughs> yeah. I know, big shock. No, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's a very on-the-nose sort of thing, but... Yeah, like it's a useful way to think about it. And yeah, even though it's represented by a physical mark, it's important to remember that it's really a psychological one and it's a a wound, an inner wound, basically. And that's more manifest in The Last Jedi by like how like Kylo reacts basically after he's rejected by Rey when she leaves him behind after he makes his dumb proposition basically because like he may not be physically wounded by that whole drama and that encounter but through his behavior he demonstrates that he's hurting a great deal basically and yeah he's someone who's like lashing out and in pain like a wild beast who's been damaged basically and like he deserves it he brought it upon himself it was all of his own doing but he does still bear that scar and yeah it's interesting to see how that's going to pay off essentially yeah and essentially it's a cause of separation for the characters right it's a kind of betrayal at least in one character's eyes sometimes in both yes um yeah and kind of marks the next stage of the journey and Another important thing to make of this is in terms of the framing, it's not framed as a betrayal on Ray's part in either case when she seeks this illumination. It's very much portrayed as a good and a healthy and a heroic thing that she's looking to discover the truth of who he is and what lies underneath. So, yeah. And and I'd argue that that's simply because we're talking about a modern story that's written in view of modern sensibilities where female curiosity isn't punished and condemned. <laughs> I, I mean more in terms of Kylo's perception of, of how Ray leaves him or betrays him. Oh yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And that is his perception of it. Um, and yeah, that's another interesting point of differentiation. In the myth, it's obviously Cupid who leaves. But in our story, in the sequel trilogy, both times it's Ray who leaves. And I think that's very significant and that's about giving her agency and making her the person who acts instead of being the person who is acted upon. I think that would um, bring the sequel trilogy closer in line to uh, if we compare it to more modern versions of Beauty and the Beast, which obviously itself is an evolution of Cupid and Psyche. So yeah, it's just how myths evolve all the time. Yeah, exactly. And it's something we're going to talk about in more detail in a bit. 
Right, and then let's get to the final part of the story. So we won't ex- fully explore what this might mean for the future yet because we want to do that in a separate episode. But there are still certain aspects of this stage of the story that have parallel, basically, in The Last Jedi specifically. So I'll read this out and then let Kirsty take the floor to explain that. So the last part of the story. Cast out, Psyche experiences various trials and hardships, having to pass a number of cruel and seemingly insurmountable tests set by Venus. With Psyche on the verge of total failure after her final trial, a descent into the underworld, Cupid rushes to her side and begs Zeus to intercede on behalf of him and Psyche. Venus is ordered to cease her torments. Psyche is given the ambrosia of immortality, and Psyche and Cupid are united in marriage as equals. Yeah, and I know you had lots of thoughts about Venus and Snoke in relation to this, and also going back a little bit. Right, Kirsty? Yeah, I'm going to keep beating this drum as funny as it is to a picture Snoke as Aphrodite, because <laughs> there's some really in my opinion, quite on-the-nose comparisons because Robert Johnson talks a lot about how she, Aphrodite, um, in this obviously twisted irony, causes the marriage she was trying to prevent in the first place. Right. And, of course, we see that as a direct parallel in The Last Jedi with Snoke forging the Force connection between them and saying, it was I who bridged your minds. I stoked Ren's conflicted soul. I knew he was not strong enough to hide it from you and you were not wise enough to resist the bait. Um... So again, it's about underestimating that relationship between two young characters. Yeah. Um, also, um, in order to find Eros, Psyche must confront Aphrodite, for he is in her power now. Psyche finally goes to Aphrodite's altar, for it is almost always the case that whatever had wounded you will also be instrumental in your healing. Aphrodite cannot resist giving a tyrannical speech, which reduces Psyche to the status of a scullery maid, a low place indeed. Yeah, that's spookily close to the throne room scene, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I think it might have been more evident as a one-on-one comparison if Snoke had been this older but beautiful, fearsome woman. Yes. God, whatever. Um, But that's exactly what we get. Um, Kylo is positioned as, like, under Snoke's thumb, as as opposed to the rest of the movie where you kind of just see him with Rey. It's just the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Psyche going to the underworld or going to that place, going to the altar. Uh, feels more like an underworld in terms of Snoke's throne room being red and the idea of it being a boudoir. Yes. Um, separated from the outside world until everything burns down. And there's even this part <laughs> where... Uh, Robert Johnson says, one may view a marriage as two people standing back to back, each protecting the other in a particular way. Which, yeah, seems like that fight. Yeah, we have an exact visual parallel for that. (laughs) Yeah, we get that direct imagery. Yeah, no, that's so true. And there's also that point of, in the myth, like at the climax of the myth, like Cupid having abandoned Psyche, he actually returns to her and he's the one who saves her from Aphrodite. So he'd seemed lost. It seemed like he was completely under his mother's thumb. But then he rejects that influence to seek union with Psyche. You obviously see that with Kylo in that when Rey first arrives on the finalizer, like it seems like all is lost. It seems like Kylo is fully sworn to Snoke and is going to be loyal to him. 
And then it's only at the last moment that he demonstrates that his allegiance has actually switched to Rey and that he's there to fight her corner and to be at her side rather than at the side of his mysterious godlike mentor figure. Mm-hmm. Like The only problem with discussing this myth in relation to the sequel trilogy is that there's almost too many parallels. <laughs> and it's easy <laughs> to get a bit lost in it. It becomes a bit of a maze. So I hope that read to people as somewhat coherent <laughs> as an exploration yeah i think this part's a good summary as well again from robert johnson um though there are endless variations that make up the individuality of life the coming to terms with the masculine element takes a predictable course a young woman is likely to touch masculinity first as father which i would take as either Uncar Pla or han and luke or possibly all of them mm-hmm. um then as the devourer in her marriage to death uh, that's Kylo in The Force Awakens. Um, then is Eros who promises paradise if she will not ask questions. That's Kylo in The Last Jedi when he proposes, basically. Um, later, she will find him as the god of love that he truly is. The honeymoon of courtship, which is the paradise garden, claims us first. There, Psyche finds herself in the most lovely of tranquil gardens where her every wish is ac- accomplished. We wish this might last forever, but every garden has a serpent or shadow figure who brings their tranquility to an abrupt halt which is, <laughs> well, it's interesting because that is partly Luke yelling, stop and leave this island now. Mm. Uh, but it's also the disillusionment, of course, when everything goes wrong between Ray and Kylo later. Yeah. No, it's so fascinating to me how there's all these like duplicate moments and like replays of the same drama within the sequel trilogy itself. And I can't help but think that's a function of it both being three independent stories like in that each film is its own story and then one great overarching story i think that's why we're seeing this doubling up and like crossing of the same ground and conflations of different characters and their functions and Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's going to make it really fascinating to analyze in relation to this myth once we have the complete story yeah i think what's critical by the end of the last jedi um is not only that Rey has kind of come more into her own as a result of the events, but there's that disillusionment of them separating. Um, so obviously that's Eros leaving Psyche, but when Rey leaves Kylo, the you know shutting of the Falcon door, it's painful for both parties. That's what's kind of key because they're about to enter that period of suffering and growth, which kind of has to happen separately to an extent. So that really is the scales falling from her eyes. That's just kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier with some of Daisy's recent interviews about free giving up on Kylo or thinking you had it all. It's, it appears to be a regression, but it's actually a period of growth. Yeah, exactly. And like I think this quote from Robert Johnson, I know we're just going crazy with the Robert Johnson quotes right now, but there's just too many good ones. Um, this one like wraps up quite nicely in terms of what will need to happen in The Rise of Skywalker, basically. Um, so this is what Johnson says. The problem of Eros and Psyche could be condensed into a single word, levels. All of the journeys, tasks and struggles of Psyche are better understood by levels. She is thrown about between earth and heaven, mortality and immortality, humanness and godliness. It is the ultimate synthesis of these opposites, which is Psyche's victory. All of her struggles are to reconcile the many levels which play upon her. And... Yeah, I think you see that throughout Ray's story so far, basically, in terms of being thrown from extremes and 
like having to go from like opposite ends of like the equations in terms of good and bad resistance and first order her friends and Kylo Ren Jakku in outer space just being this lonely orphan girl and being this like prophet of the force who's expected to lead the resistance so I think in the rise of Skywalker we are going to have to see some reconciliation of all that drama and all those extremes that she's had to struggle with Mm-hmm. so yeah we should follow on from that again we're jumping ahead to the rise of Skywalker but I do think the elements of this quote from Marie-Louise von Franz in The Feminine and Fairy Tales uh, relates a lot to Kylo and Rey's force connection in The Last Jedi and also how it's perceived by Luke kind of what we were talking about earlier with Cupid and Psyche with the sisters um, and a father figure in general for fairy tales um the girl is attracted to a ghost instead of a human bridegroom and is very happy with him. It is a marvellous illustration of what we so dryly and technically express as animus possession, which is an abstract formula meaning that the woman is married to a head bridegroom and unattainable and unapproachable on the human side. She is in constant conversation with this autonomous spiritual factor with whom she has long inner conversations. If one could watch oneself when in an animus possessed state, one would see, as one does in another woman, that one is constantly engaged in an inner conversation, thinking about and discussing things that one cannot tell other people. One cannot interrupt it, for it is completely involuntary. Only the onlooker notices that the animus-possessed woman is linked up in conversation with an inner spiritual process. She is so in it that she cannot see it. That is why such women appear not to be quite there, and as though they had something up their sleeve, for they keep something to themselves. The head is a wonderful image of the animus, with its opinions and musings going on all the time. Animus possession is especially irritating for a real man. A human bridegroom would have killed or hurt the head. It has an automatically irritating effect on the living man, who cannot stand this process going on in a woman. You can see this in life when a girl begins to have her own ideas. The father hears his daughter arguing and feels the animus growing. So I do think what we see in The Last Jedi is an animus possession to an extent. Rey obviously is arguing with Kylo. She doesn't immediately accept him. But you get that conflict. Um, and he's in her head, right? Um, and Luke sees it from the outside and doesn't like what he sees. I don't know. Well, the separation at the end of The Last Jedi, I think that kind of shows where things are going in terms of in individuation for Rey. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really well expressed and drawing an analogy to that sort of quote it demonstrates the ways in which stars is operating on, on a mythic level because it's taking an inner psychological process like in this dialogue that a woman might have with her inner animus and it's enacting that through actual characters with like Ray and Kylo both as real people and Kylo's serving a dual function both as this real man who's an actual person and as the animus within Rey herself and yeah mm -hmm. it's an interesting like way to frame it yeah I think there's a book that Jason Fry wrote I think it was like a a diary for written from Rose's perspective mm -hmm. um, and when she wakes up and meets Rey she notes that she always seems to have this distance to her and this far-off look in her eyes yeah. as if she's thinking about something far away. 
And I think that's what reminds me of this too. Yes. That there's this separation between Ray and the tangible, real human political conflict that's going on. And in The Rise of Skywalker, we'll have to kind of see that balance being achieved. Yeah. Right. Okay. So now we have done that epic run through of the Cupid and Psyche myth in relation to the sequel trilogy. We want to drill down a bit further into the specific characters and what's going on with them on an individual level. So we're not going to completely isolate them from their relationship with one another because, as I hope we've demonstrated, that's very fundamental and important to understanding these characters. But just in terms of getting really precise about things, I think there's benefit to looking at them one-on-one. So with Kylo, the reason why we specifically wanted to revisit him this time is because... Well, in the episode on masculinity, as I kind of tagged on at the end, we kind of talked about him like a bit of a Neanderthal. <laughs> well, well, that's the word I use. I, I say uh, that yeah. because that's the word I use then. Like, please do go ahead and qualify it, though, because, yeah. <laughs> well, this is kind of highlighting the complexity of that character and why we all love him so much, right? Mm-hmm. Because he does have that duality and that conflict. Um, and obviously the masculine and feminine is not resolved in him and that's part of the story but if we're talking about the masculine in one episode and the feminine in another it's natural for us to kind of focus on what we would consider those destructive masculine qualities yes um which to be fair you mostly see in the force awakens and then for the last jedi he's actually um i mean that's the idea right that he's coming closer and closer to it knowing and accepting the feminine in ray and himself just as we were talking about how the animus is embodied within Rey in terms of possession, but also externally symbolized by Kylo as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, obviously, everything goes tits up again, and he appears to regress. So there's the whole I will destroy her thing. He is he wants to destroy the feminine instead of accepting it. Because as Robert Johnson notes, that's it's terrifying. <laughs> it's a scary concept for that masculine mythical figure to accept the feminine. Yeah, because it's trans- it's transformative so it takes you from one stage of life to another and change is hard yeah exactly because yeah like in terms of the feminine like aspects of Kylo Ren like I think it's pretty safe to say that they come out most strongly in like those scenes with Rey and like one of the most interesting aspects of him is his curiosity which is not a trait that you see him express beyond Ray, really he's not very interested in other people and is all very much about his own complexes and his own anger and his own pain and his own like, ability to express himself through violence and physicality like he only really operates on a more intellectual internal level when he's with her in particular i think about all those scenes with the force bond in the last jedi where we have those conversations going back and forth between the characters where there is that deep level of interrogation specifically of what is going on with Rey emotionally and why she feels the way she feels and thinks the way she thinks. So he basically is interested in developing her in this intellectual sense, which I find really fascinating. And again, it's this real complementary aspect of the character that you would not expect from a villainous character, really. (laughs) A certain kind of villainous character. Yeah. 
it's also about showing them as these complementary forces um and really this is where i'm going to start drawing in my jane Eyre book so i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the comparison i i settled on which i know is hardly original and other people have said it as well but is those fireside chats between ring between Ray and Kylo Ren. <laughs> they do have that fireside they chat. They do, yes. <laughs> Not quite <laughs> what I was going for. Um, yeah, the fireside chats between Jane and Rochester and Jane Eyre, where they're very much about stimulating the intellect and discovering what is operating beneath the exterior of the other person. And that's what's going on through the Force Bond, basically. And in the Jane Eyre book, the author Elizabeth Imlay, she basically characterizes Rochester as the Eros, as you'd expect, and he's representative of love and passion. And Jane is Psyche, or the soul, so she's more airy and abstract. And what she writes is about this attraction that exists between them. If there were no moral elements in Rochester, he would not appreciate the soul as personified by Jane. Similarly, if Jane were not passionate, she would not understand the god of passion. So I think that captures quite well the value of that sort of dialogue going on because the very fact that Kylo is so interested in Rey and interested in digging deep into her and discovering about who she is that basically represents an attraction to the sort of qualities that she represents and the goodness that she represents. Like So yeah, it's about having an outlet that is positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. Mm-hmm. I also think it's emphasizing that yin yang um, nature as well, mm-hmm. that it's not just black and white, but they both have a little part of the other already in them. Um, so that's what they're recognizing. It's kind of when your soul goes, oh, you, I know you. Yeah. Um, you seem very familiar to me somehow. Um, I think there are even bits in the Force Awakens novelization where Ray remarks to herself that she recognizes Kylo from somewhere that she's seen him before in a daydream, in a nightmare. Mm. Um, and then he has that recognition in in the snow fire on Starkiller. It is you. So, yeah, you get these little echoes as if these characters have already met at some point. Yep. And yeah, another observation I had about those dialogues through the force bond between the characters Um is that it's interesting to me that it's mostly like a one-way conversation. So Kylo is very interested in teasing out Ray's emotions and how Ray sees things and thinks about things. But Kylo doesn't so much accept it the other way around. So you don't get much where Ray is questioning Kylo and like trying to dig deep into him. Like she tries, but he doesn't really respond properly. So when she asks why did you kill your father for example he just diverts essentially he doesn't want to answer that question he doesn't want to dig deep into himself so he just changes the subject and switches it back to her um which is obviously evasion but i also think that's an interesting representation and crystallization of what his limits are basically at this point in the story and I think it also signals what still needs to come with him because I think he's actually quite good at being sensitive to others and being empathetic towards Ray in particular 
but he's no good whatsoever at looking into himself and wrestling with his own like inner feelings and emotions. Yeah, I'd say the only true moment of exchange is when they touch hands, right? Yeah. Um, because there are other moments when she says, murderous snake, and I found Skywalker, and he's he's also just like, oh, well, did he tell you what happened? Like, he's he's more concerned about these other things. Yeah. Um, and like you say, it's probably deflection and evasion because he's not ready to confront and accept the feminine. Um but is still fascinated and wants to hear what she thinks. Yeah, no, and that's a really good point about the hut scene specifically because like, I remember how the dialogue goes in that where it's Kylo telling Rey that she's not alone after like, she says about how lonely she felt in the cave and isolated and just by herself. It's very sad and poignant that he reaches out to her in that way. And... Kylo doesn't offer any confession of his own loneliness or his own like feelings of isolation but Rey like being intuitive and being like connected to like her feminine side <laughs> as you would imagine um she instinctively knows that he's lonely because she responds neither are you and like he's so responsive to that and grateful and yeah as you said Kirsty, that leads to that moment of like true equality and connection between them when they do touch hands and it's a wordless moment but it's a moment of like perfect connection and understanding between them which they hadn't quite achieved before even though they'd come close so mm-hmm. yeah it's very beautiful yeah and you could see like kylo through those connections with ray as being strengthened by that recognition basically and emboldened by it and that's ultimately what leads him to have the courage to do what he does with Snoke and overthrow him and yeah we have a quote from Robert Johnson tying into that right Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Um, this is obviously relating back to Cupid and Psyche too but I feel like it's really on the nose for Kylo um, when a woman lights the lamp and sees the god in him he feels called upon to live up to that to be strong in his masculine consciousness Naturally, he trembles, yet he requires this feminine acknowledgement of his worth. Terrible things happen to men who are deprived of the presence of women, inner or outer, for usually it is the presence of woman that reminds each man of the best that is in him. I think we see that illustrated very powerfully when he's at the end of the film and he's either like a raging, violent mess (laughs) without Ray, or he's just so miserable and alone and desolate without that like influence on himself so i think it's Mm -hmm. that whole idea of having touched that paradise and experienced that thing with ray and then being denied it so he knows now what that looks like what that perfect communion is and yeah he's been denied it and he's now aware that that's the worst feeling in the world basically yeah so I mean, looking at how he appears in that proposal scene in the throne room where he's saying, please, he is trembling. Mm. He it does require this feminine acknowledgement of his worth. Like at that point, all of his hopes and dreams are tied up in Ray saying yes, because he hasn't thought beyond that. Yes. So when that goes away, uh, he, he's lost. Exactly. Completely adrift. And it's very sad. Um, yeah. And then there's another good quote from Johnson that sort of ties into this. The touch of light or consciousness is a fiery experience and often stings a man into awareness 
This is partly why he fears the feminine so much. A huge proportion of man's bantam rooster behaviour is a futile effort to hide his fear of the feminine. It is mostly the woman's task to lead a man to new consciousness in, in the relationship. The woman is the carrier of growth in most relationships. A man fears this, but he fears even more the loss of it. And yeah, I, I think you see exactly that with Kylo because he tries to deny the growth opportunities that Ray presents to him because to like accept her side in things and to go back to the resistance, that would be like massive like growth and evolution for him. But he's too afraid of that and he's convinced that that's impossible for him now. And yeah, by denying that and succumbing to his fear in that regard of the development that making that right choice would represent, he then loses everything. And yeah, it's pretty catastrophic for him. Yeah, this is interesting because it's where we start to get into territory around the actual discourse that we see concerning the sequel trilogy. Mm. Um, so this part obviously relates to a lot of the concerns that we've seen expressed about how it's not Ray's job to redeem or heal Kylo, mm. um, that he needs to do that on his own, that it's sexist to say that the woman is the carrier of growth. And I totally get where that's coming from. And it's one of the reasons that we have our own personal misgivings with some of Robert Johnson's work mm. um, and, and how that can be applied to the sequel trilogy. But he does go on to say... Um, few women understand how great is the hunger in a man to be near femininity. This should not be a burden for a woman, and she will not have to bear this in such a solitary manner all of her life. As a man discovers his own inner femininity, he will not rely so heavily on the outer woman to live this out for him. It is especially true that when a man is in a mood, he needs true femininity from his woman so that he may get his bearings and be a man again. And that true femininity that we see is embodied in Ray's rejection of Kylo's destructive masculine. Mm. So that's what he needs at that moment. So anyone who's concerned about Ray's agency being compromised or whatever, it's it's the reverse, that we've seen Ray's agency, uh, we've seen her act in a way that is healthy for herself and for Kylo. He is developed not through Ray acquiescing to everything that he wants and like mindlessly obeying him. Is the opposite of that. It's her like going up against him and challenging him and refusing to submit to like his vision for how things should be basically and that's ultimately what leads to the growth experience and really that's like a big part of the symbolic like resonance of the cupid and psyche myth because it's important that psyche disobeys cupid and goes against him because that is then this engine of growth for both of them, despite it having these catastrophic consequences in the short term. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's that ties into what we can probably speculate on for the Rise of Skywalker when we get to it. Um, I mean, that's what it says here. That's Kylo starting to discover his own inner femininity so that he doesn't have to rely so heavily on Rey. Yeah. Um, it's just like what we were talking about earlier with Rey and the animus possession throughout The Last Jedi. He's had that anima possession, um, but both are now separated and um, they have to reconcile that within themselves and accepting it in each other. Yes, that's exactly it. God, I'm really excited to discuss some Rise of Skywalker predictions in Lord of All This. <laughs> well, 
I think will be similarly frustratingly vague and esoteric because <laughs> we're not going to come down to specific plot points and I don't even know if we did for um, The Last Jedi. Yeah, I can't remember now. I know we did predictions for The Last Jedi, but... We did, but they were probably stuff that it's very easy to... Oh, Luke and Rey aren't going to get on and <laughs> Rey and Kylo are going to forge a deeper connection. Like, duh. Yeah, it'd be funny <laughs> if we used Robert Johnson to be like... According to Robert Johnson, Rain Kylo will meet again on the planet Kalufu and they will have a fight that lasts approximately 15 minutes before deciding to resolve the anima and animus together. <laughs> and we'll be wrong. No. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone looking to that will probably be let down. <laughs> yeah. No, it won't be that sort of analysis. So then we'll have a little look at Ray. And we'll maybe a not so little look. We'll find out in due course. Um, yeah, and with this discussion of Ray, what I was really interested in doing is how we're called upon to identify with her role in the story and like how that might help to explain some of the reactions to that character and why she is such a radical like concept for Star Wars basically to have as a protagonist. And yeah, so we're going to build off the foundations in hopefully an interesting and worthwhile way, <laughs> but we will see. Um so yeah, I was looking back at the introductions of Rey and Leia specifically in their respective first movies. So Rey in The Force Awakens and Leia in the original Star Wars. And I was just looking at how they were framed in their respective introductions. Because with Rey, you literally have this five minute silent sequence where it's purely dedicated just to getting to know her and her subjective world basically and that's taken quite far it's taken to the point where you don't even hear her speak for those first few minutes you just get to experience things as she experiences them so you experience her going up to Uncarplatz and being given like a pathetic amount of money for all the hard work she's done that day and you get to experience like her desperation for that stupid muffin to rise up because she's so hungry you get to experience that childlike joy as she plays with the helmet. All of those things are very much about building empathy for her and really creating this deep sense of identification. So, yeah, it's basically undeniable that she is our protagonist. She's the main point of identification for us. And it's interesting to compare that to what they do with Leia because in the very, the very first time you see Leia in Star Wars, she's actually seen from C-3PO's perspective. Because in the first part of that film, that is the perspective that we're entrenched in. We understand the story as 3PO and R2-D2 understand it. And so Leia is very much this distant, like, goddess-type figure. And, like, yeah, I, I thought... It's, this is interesting because you can relate it to this whole idea that we find in the Cupid's, Cupid and Psyche myth. Where Rey is very much this ordinary person... And Leia, by contrast, she is this more elevated goddess-type figure. So yeah, I was wondering, would you like to talk about that a bit, Kirsty? Yeah, this is very complicated, and I hope that we don't end up um, kind of diminishing the importance of Leia for so many fans, because she really is important. Oh, yeah. And, she, and she's a great character, but it is true that they are presented differently um and throughout the original trilogy really and even elements of the sequel trilogy where she's used as like the hologram for luke um 
or a, a way for Luke to reconnect with the Force. Um, Leia is often presented as object, whereas Rey is undeniably subject. Yeah. Um, especially in the opening sequence that you described. Um, I think that's why people connect and love that kind of montage so much. It says so much without really saying anything. Um, so yeah, I, I was thinking about how Ray and Psyche are positioned as the ordinary human, in air quotes, because they're not really ordinary at all, but they appear to be ordinary, and they are human in contrast with the gods, um, who we can see as the Skywalkers. They are like the, the Olympian gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and she encounters that magical realm. She's thrust into the Skywalker drama. Um, and like you say, if we're thinking about the contrast between Aphrodite and Psyche, which I know we've talked a lot about the comparisons between Snoke and Aphrodite in terms of the sequel trilogy, been talking about Leia as a character overall across the saga, she does have that kind of, well, (laughs) she's even called your worshipfulness, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's not that she doesn't have her own characters or a sense of humor or she's a total badass. Um, but she's a character within Luke's story as opposed to Rey being part of her own story yeah exactly so you do have wonderful books that explore Leia as a subjective character like Leia Princess of Alderaan for example that is 100% Leia's story and she is the point of identification and empathy in that book and that's fantastic but yeah, it's just about recognising that she serves a very different function in the actual mainline movies. Yeah, and it evolved across the original trilogy as George changed his mind about what he wanted to do, because I think, as we talked about last week, uh, Leia's very much the goddess um, in Luke's hero's journey, especially in the first Star Wars, where she kind of inspires him to go off on the quest in the first place to rescue the princess, um, and then kind of echoes of that in the sequel trilogy itself too that she inspires him to return to the known world yes um but yeah ray is just on a different level for me in terms of relatability but i appreciate that people will see it differently yeah and i do wonder when we're talking about that in terms of ray being this ordinary human um if that's why all of the speculation around ray's parentage kind of uh, it doesn't ruin the story for me. Yeah. But I wonder if some of the meaning has been kind of lost or at least veiled for some fans, which seems like a real shame. Yeah. No, exactly. So it is such a powerful story to have this human character like discovering this elevated plane of the gods and then having to like find a way of integrating that with her more earthy realm, basically. Like, that's really fascinating as a concept. I know that for you and me, that story has really spoken to us and resonated. But, yeah, I think it just doesn't really register for a lot of people. And, like, I can only think that it's because it is about this very, very subjective feminine experience, which, like, I will say is just less common for people. I think people are less familiar with it. So they struggle with what to make of it, basically. So it feels quite alien to some people. Like, especially if they don't even really understand the type of story they're looking at. So I think a lot of people look at a Star Wars movie and they expect the sort of mythic structure and, 
like character tropes that we had in the in the original trilogy when the sequel trilogy is actually doing something quite different and yeah I, I think that's harder to pin down for some people yeah and as we pointed out with the entire kind of thesis of this episode um it is still grounded in myth but it's feminine myth and um i've got to say i find it hard to blame individual fans when it comes to how lucasfilm have handled it Mm. um in the marketing at least i i don't know why but they're still being very evasive on the issue of race parentage yeah um and like teasing it as something that will be explored further in the rise of skywalker which i'm sure isn't a lie but i don't think it's what people are going to be hoping for if I think it's going to be more about what that means for Ray. Yeah. Um, and I just don't quite understand it because it's almost like they're trying to undermine the themes of their own story. Yeah. Exactly. It's um, a bit frustrating. Yes, it's it's probably just a marketing thing that it's like, well, that's what's hooked people, so let's keep going. But if that's not the story you're trying to tell, uh, I wonder if that's counterproductive. But I'm not in Lucasfilm marketing, so this is just my unasked for hot take yeah no and no, i think that's just marketing isn't it it often doesn't matter what the actual product is as long as it, it you can sell it on whatever basis and get people talking about it they're less concerned with like how strictly accurate they are being yeah it's not even just about like the story that's going on within the in-universe story itself but that it seems almost at odds with comments that jj and Ryan have both made in terms of what they found thematically important for showing how the force can be for anyone that you can have a a character who is kind of thrust into this adventure but isn't connected to the royal slash god family at the center of it all yeah and I know you get that with Finn too but I do think that's what they're pushing with Rey yeah I guess they're just finding it hard to market that which is a shame but yeah like marketing's got to do what marketing's got to do i suppose um yeah so it speaks to us but obviously it doesn't speak to everyone exactly which is also okay yeah no different strokes different folks <laughs> and you found a great quote from marie louise von franz didn't you kirsty about like the feminine figure in fairy tales and the extent to which she's the point of focus right yeah again i thought this was really worth kind of talking about because it relates to how Darius fans perceive the sequel trilogy and why the, there are some debates that go on about it and raise position in it. Um, if we look for feminine archetypal modes of behaviour, we at once stumble over the problem that the feminine figures in fairy tales might have been formed by a man and therefore do not represent a woman's idea of femininity, but rather what Jung called the anima, that is, man's femininity. A feminine figure in a fairy tale with the whole story circling around it does not necessarily prove that the tale has to do with a woman's psychology. Many long stories of the sufferings of a woman have been written by men and are the projection of their animus problem. This is particularly the case in the theme of the rejected woman who has to go a long way in suffering in order to find the right bridegroom, as for instance, in the story of Amor and Psyche. Yeah. Amor being yet another term for <laughs> Eros and Cupid. It's like, make it stop. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, that's a really fantastic quote, and I do appreciate the little um, like dig at Cupid and Psyche. <laughs> so I love it. I think it's a beautiful story, and I think 
like Johnson's analysis of it is very illuminating and beneficial. But at the same time, I do also feel it's very important to look at these things critically and with my various different perspectives in mind. And yeah, like I think it demonstrates the benefit in looking at women's revisions of these stories and how different sensibilities can reframe things and give things a different emphasis. Because, yeah, when talking about the sequel trilogy, it's tricky, isn't it? It's obviously, it's a story where all the films have been directed and written by men. So there's no getting around that. But there is also the thing where for many female fans, they do feel like it's been uniquely capable in capturing some really profound like truths about the feminine experience and has really succeeded in crafting a very like relatable and powerful story for Ray. So yeah, like it's a really interesting tension going on basically. It is really interesting because you get also a lot of fans who really love Ray and loved how the Force Awakens presented her but then felt betrayed by what Ryan did with her in terms of her connection with Kylo and some of the choices that she was making there. Mm. So, yeah, it's there's no answer because this is just an issue that, <laughs> that's been at the centre of debate around mythology for millennia. Um, is Rey truly the main character? We happen to think so, but there are people who don't. There are people who want her to be, but don't feel like she is. There are people who'd prefer Kylo to be the main character and believe that he is. Mm. Um, so this is kind of what Marie-Louise von Franz is getting at here. Is Rey truly a fl- fully fleshed main character in her own right? Or is she a projection of the antagonist's anima? Um, kind of coming back to, is she closer to what? Leia would have been for Luke in the original trilogy? Have we kind of projected more stuff onto her and in hoping that she's more? I don't think so, but I totally get why other people might think so. It's, there's not one answer. Yeah, it's about, it's about the different perspectives we bring. It's about what we think about the male creators behind these stories. Um, about how it's totally understandable to wish that a woman had been involved in the creation of the sequel trilogy. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. Like, I think that's why it's so important that she is introduced like by herself, like on Jakku, so we get a, this feel for her as this independent person with her own like history and background. And then everything else is all about fleshing out for her and building her up and expanding on her as a person. But there is still that core to her as an individual that is unshakable basically and it remains in place throughout the rest of the stories yeah i think what's key is that we get a character who has her own private thoughts and feelings and i think that's also true for kylo we see scenes with both of those characters experiencing things by themselves yeah no 100 um, percent. yeah because i mean we have discussed ray as kylo's anima just as we've discussed kylo as ray's animus does that mean that we're somehow being dismissive or reducing her to something? No, because I don't think we're saying that's all she is. Yeah, That's just kind of what they represent for each other at a certain point in the story. Um, and then I was thinking, we've thought about this a lot really, haven't we? If Kylo is redeemed, and we think he will be, and Rey therefore stays on the light side throughout the story, she stays good, who then gets the more transformative, notable arc that people want to talk about more? Mm. Is it just a question of each audience member's perspective? Yeah. Um, 
this stuff's fascinating no it is so interesting like my and i i don't mean to like go to people or upset anyone by saying this i do think that in the popular consciousness it would probably be kylo's outcome that would probably be like the wow factor the fireworks thing like that people would really recognize because it would be so transparent and obvious because on the surface level like yeah it would be this guy who went from being this like evil supreme leader of the galaxy to being a good guy again which is a very like clear and extreme path for him to go on whereas any transformation in ray like she's not going to go to the dark side or like do anything uber extreme like on that over superficial level so any transformation in her is going to be much more intimate and small and it's going to be about personal growth and revelation and insight and i think that will speak really really powerfully to some fans and to people who are really connected with that character and invested in her but i i don't think it will be quite the discussion point as kylo's Mm. yeah i guess i mean you have to have hope because at the end of the late at the end of the day luke is an incredibly popular character uh so is vader (laughs) but um i guess it's called jane Eyre. it's not called mr rochester yeah do have uh, another quote here from von franz where she's kind of acknowledging that there's a bit of a an either or or an and situation going on sometimes depending on the story um we thus have to start with a paradox feminine figures in fairy tales are neither the pattern of the anima nor of the real woman but of both because sometimes it is one and sometimes another but it is a fairly good guess to say that some fairy tales illustrate more the real woman and others more the man's anima according to the sex of the last person who wrote down the story (laughs) thereby giving it a slightly different nuance so this is again kind of what we've been talking about that it heavily depends um, I mean, this is how myth works. Who who wrote it down? Yeah. So what did they decide to emphasize? What did they decide to cut because it didn't please them personally? How do things adapt over the centuries? Um, I know you've been talking a lot about East of the Sun, West of the Moon mm. and how that's kind of a different take on a similar story Yeah. that you appreciate more for understandable reasons. Yeah, exactly. And that is very much a fairy tale, like where you can read that and see it as the story more of a real woman rather than that anima. So it is very much like identifying with that character and her struggles and like her active choices rather than her being acted upon, which, yeah, I, I like to think is more relatable probably for most women than something like Cupid and Psyche. Well, that's still being a beautiful and identifiable story. Yeah, I would just go with Beauty and the Beast as a a more updated version of Cupid and Psyche, even though we've been referring to Cupid and Psyche the whole way through. Um, if it t- if we want deeper characterization, and of course there are a million different versions of that fairy tale too. Yes, and everyone will have their own personal preference. Yeah, so essentially, von Franz is saying it's okay for us to think of Ray as both, and it's just as the inverse. It's okay for us to think of Kylo as both too. Exactly. So we were discussing, obviously, like the criticism of something like Cupid and Psyche and like the limitations of that sort of story because of questions of authorship and emphasis. So I felt that it would be useful to take a look at a story that in many ways it takes the Cupid and Psyche template and it tells a much more modern story. 
and it tells that story from a very female perspective and it's bonus points written by a woman and shock 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 horror but that story is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and yeah this is where I can finally bring in my reading of that Elizabeth Imlay book Imlay has this useful quote about the tension that occurs between like Cupid and Psyche, Jane and Rochester, and for our purposes, Ray and Kylo Ren. So we have this. The battle between love, personified by Rochester, and the soulless conscience, personified by Jane, comes to a head in the long chapter following the catastrophe at the wedding. In the myth and its related fairy tales, there is no real conflict of this kind, only the breaking of a mysterious taboo. Jane and Rochester are caught in an insoluble dilemma, to which each imagines there is a different answer. If Jane becomes Rochester's mistress, she will, according to the evolutionary rules of the psychic plot, surrender her crucial identity, deteriorate, and become something useless to him. On the other hand, if Jane leaves Rochester, she also destroys them both, although this is not clear to her at the time. Without love, Jane will fall under the deadening power of the intellect, destined to work herself to death without ever knowing happiness again. Without Jane, Rochester, no longer prepared to compromise, sinks into despairing isolation and is in a fair way to losing his reason. So, yeah, I thought this is a great quote. So it obviously echoes the sorts of things we were saying before with the quotes from Johnson about like how terrible things happen to men when they're deprived of women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, I don't know why I say it in a silly voice, because it's true. Well, he's talking about myth. Yeah. But, yeah, it sounds funny because, yeah, we can't we can't provide a one-to-one for real life. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly it. It's because we need to remember that all this has been said in relation to stories rather than actual people. So everything is always very heightened and melodramatic, basically, which is what I can come across as feeling quite silly sometimes. Um, but, yeah, like I like this quote because it captures the sort of psychological richness that these updates, the kinds of stories can bring. Because, yeah, like in something like Cupid and Psyche, you don't have a sense of the characters having an independent existence beyond each other, basically. They are such archetypes that they don't register as individuals. They are just those archetypes. Whereas in a story like Jane Eyre, and I'd say in the sequel trilogy, you do very much get a sense of They'll continue to exist. They'll continue to function, um, like Ray more than Kylo. Let's face it, but in some way they will be diminished. They won't quite be complete, and they'll lack some sense of fulfillment within themselves because of this absence of the other person. Yeah, it's romance, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like just making that the title of the episode now. It's romance. <laughs> Stop making it out too more complicated than it needs to be, Rachel. Well, I do feel like this quote pretty much sums up, like you say, that proposal scene. After the wedding, after the throne room fight, um, for Kylo and Rey. Exactly. And, yeah, like I think this following quote from Imlay, once again, it really does very nicely capture exactly what a more modern telling of the sort of Cupid and Psyche story can bring and why it's valuable and important to update it. 
When Psyche shines her lamp on Cupid, the realisation comes over her that what she had mistrusted for a wild beast is actually a god. Jane's revelation is that Passion, whom she had come to think of as a god, contains within himself a terrible beast, more that this wild beast is what she might herself become if she travels too far southwards, too near the sun. Psyche does not choose to leave Cupid, but Jane does consciously choose to leave Rochester. The specific activities of the soul, free will and moral choice, are given full power. So I love this quote because it does exactly what the sequel trilogy is doing in illuminating the fact that that power to question and that power to deny, it's a very positive thing. It's a very creative act at the same time that is destructive and yeah like it also ties into this whole idea of the heroine having this idolized image of the man that she is in this like anima animus relationship with and him failing to live up to the level that's expected of him like in light of that dynamic and like it then leading to catastrophe basically because of those unfulfilled expectations and that inability to see each other for what they actually are and yeah like basically I think it just means that what needs to happen is that full clear sight of one another where the other person is revealed in their fullness and accepted and acknowledged in all that fullness mm-hmm yeah, I mean, that sums up why we love the sequel trilogy so much, I think. Um, but also why we love these kinds of stories and the more modern evolutions of them. Yes. Um, yeah, it's that she can do both. Mm-hmm. That she can make those choices. He can make those choices too. Um, and raise off to slay dragons and lift rocks while also having all of this emotional psychological complexity underneath too. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's safe to say that she's much further along the road to bouncing her anima and animus than Kylo is. <laughs> well, they'll both get there by the end of the story, but yeah, it's it's hard to say at this point at, at what stage um, Kylo will make it within the Rise of Skywalker. Although, as we pointed out earlier, I don't think that fight is going to be an act-free thing. Yes. So interesting to kind of watch where that goes exactly and see what else is yet to be revealed yeah and then really at this point i just think i want to wrap it up by bringing us to where both those characters end their respective stories because i don't think it's a coincidence in the last jedi ray and kylo ren they are both in a way alone at the end of the film like ray much less so than kylo because she's obviously on a busy spaceship surrounded by friends and people who love and care about her which is very important because that's a key way in which the film demonstrates to us that Rey has this like external has this rich external life that extends beyond the whole Kylo Ren drama basically there's much more going on with her but you do have that moment where she's just sitting by herself looking outwards say it Finn and Rose as they're together and they're united in that way and she's looking thoughtful and contemplative and you have that parallel shot of Kylo who is on the base at crates 
and he's looking very very sorrowful and sad and lonely as he bows his head as the light streams in and yeah like we have a nice quote from johnson actually about stillness and women would you like to read that out kirsty yeah i included this because i thought it summed up the end of act two of hooray so well Mm -hmm. Um, A woman has a profound capacity to be still, perhaps the most powerful act any human being can make. She is required to go back to a very still, inner centre every time something profound happens to her. This is a highly creative act, but must be done correctly. She is to be receptive, not passive. I think that last part is especially true Yes, when it comes to Ray. She's not passive, she made choices, and now she's sitting and contemplating and figuring out where things go from there. Um, and that it's like consciously separating her from the people that, as you say, surround her. She's not literally alone, but I think it's going to be an ongoing theme, that separation and um, how it can be resolved. Yeah, exactly. Is left as an open question for a reason, basically. So it needs some sort of wrap up in the next film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you had a great point, Kirsty, about the question of relating to Ray in relation to this. Well, yeah, again, it could just be me projecting onto other fans for not feeling the same way I do, so I need to be careful. Uh, I just wonder if sometimes Ray might might be difficult for some fans to relate to in a way that we actually relate to her a lot because she has these quiet moments where you don't quite know exactly what she's thinking, but she's clearly thinking and going through something. Um, I do think that marks the sequel trilogy from the original trilogy in many ways because it's not just about Rey um, you also get that with Finn and Kylo and other characters too mm. um, even Luke is written very differently Yeah, and given those quiet moments of contemplation where you, you kind of have to interpret things and you won't get the exact thought process that's going on but you get the gist and that should be enough uh, but I do wonder if that's like a barrier for some fans who can't relate to her as much as we do yeah um, and have uh, and have expressed that you know I'm not just saying oh maybe some fans out there don't it's that we've seen that um, which is unfortunate yeah no I, I think that's like true obviously that's not surprising I'm unlikely to say no you're completely wrong but yeah like so I think when I look back at the original trilogy I do see Luke and you see him like literally describing his thought processes quite often usually the meaning is worn on the sleeve you know, it's not all that hidden or esoteric in the way that I think sometimes things are done with the sequel trilogy. It is more subtextual sometimes and it's just left in the air, like with the characters quietly reflecting on things and the audience being expected to do likewise. And if you're not expecting that from the characters, those moments of stillness and quiet, you probably just look at them and be a bit baffled, to be honest. So they're very meaningful for us, but they're not for everyone. And I think that's valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what they're doing is allowing us to project, which is what myth should do um, to an extent. Um, Because, you know, we do get moments of contemplation for Anakin quite a fair amount in the prequels, but then usually it's followed by him explaining what he was just experiencing or feeling to someone else. Yeah which, you know, it can be argued undermines that, but it's not. It's just a different purpose. They're clearly going through something different with Rey. Yeah, exactly. Which is why we love her so much. Um, And, yeah, wow, that was a biggie. (laughs) That's a very long discussion. (laughs) 
and we're not we're not done yeah <laughs> that's the thing <laughs> no, there's so much of these notes that we did not even go into it's ridiculous <laughs> well it's okay because we still have time before the rise of skywalker yeah no so i know we we did touch upon various moments like oh what we think that could mean for the rise of skywalker but in terms of like oh i don't want to use the term prediction <laughs> <laughs> because it will be very vague but like i guess our speculation for it yeah uh how how do we think the story will go how do we think ray's heroine's journey will continue um we've probably still got lots of things to talk about there exactly i i personally am really excited to start speculating about what the moment where the ants help psyche you know what that moment will look like for ray like what will the ants mm-hmm. be so yeah expect that level of deep deep analysis do have a couple of things in mind for that and people can probably guess Ooh. be fun to explore them i'm excited now <laughs> yeah as Kirsty said at the outset we'd love to hear from people if anyone has anything to add to this discussion any responses to what we've been waffling on about for over two hours <laughs> um and last week's yeah, show. yeah and last week's show yeah so just full stop any thoughts you have for us please do send them to scavengers at gmail.com because we'd love to hear from you um and yeah i think it's probably a good point to close off the show Kirsty. unless you have anything else you want to add before we end no i don't okay cool i think we're good <laughs> okay cool right so i'm rachel you can find me at stars nonsense on tumblr and journal of the star wars on wordpress where can people find you Kirsty? i'm bastila bay on tumblr and scavengers horde on twitter thank you so much for listening and until next time bye bye